today on EdgeFX. The aerial and, and satellite are held up as these like eye-opening, life-altering images, but yet are always linked to these traditions of domination and oppression. So how can you use them without reproducing that? Are you always reproducing those traditions? Min Song speaks with Heather Hauser, Associate Professor in the English Department at the University of Texas at Austin, and the author of Infowelm, Environmental Art and Literature in an Age of Data. They discuss Infowelm, COVID-19, Integrating Scholarship on Race into Environmental Studies, Artistic Mediations on Climate Data, and Aerial Photography. Hi, my name is Min Song, and I'm here talking with Heather Hauser about her new book, Infowelm, environmental art and literature in an age of data. You want to say hi, Heather? Hi, Min. Thanks for um, having this conversation with me today. Sure. It's my pleasure. Uh, as I was saying to you just before we began, I'm a big fan of your, of your book, uh, and I'm really looking forward to talking to you about it more. So the book itself focuses on this really interesting concept that you coined called Infowelm which refers to the ways in which our knowledge of environmental problems and, and especially of climate change depends on an enormous amount of quantitative data. It explores the ways in which this information needs stories and other artistic interventions to become meaningful. So two ideas that seem really central to the book when I read it uh, was first the idea of artistic mediation, which refers to the ways in which information is made meaningful with the help of writers and artists. And then a second concept, entangled epistemologies, which emphasizes the way in which this mediation is a two-way street. In other words, writers and artists don't just translate what scientists are discovering for a general public, but they engage in conversation with their findings uh, and with the scientists and help to produce new meanings. So overall, the book explores these two central ideas by beginning with a discussion, a section on data processing, another section on a new natural history, and then a final section on aerial perspective. And I hope we'll get a chance to talk to all three of these points uh, and really sort of dive in deep. Uh, but before we get to the book's particulars, I want to start by thinking about current events, because I feel like we're in a moment now where it's very hard not to think about current events. So you've got the COVID-19 pandemic, and we also have these mass Black Lives Matter protests happening. We also have enormous economic hardships for people, as well as a political system in the United States that uh, seems to be struggling for its life, if that's a fair way to put it. So I'm, I'm assuming that as all these events have been unfolding, uh, you've been thinking about the argument you made in your book yeah. uh, and how they might help us think about what's happening now. So the question I thought maybe would sharp most help us to think about this is if you uh, were still revising this book, what would you want to change or add? Or is there something that you've written that you feel has been really helpful in thinking about what's happening now? Yeah, thank you for that question. It is something I've been thinking quite a bit about and I've done a little writing about recently. And if I were currently revising the book now, I definitely would be talking especially about the COVID-19 information hmm. and emotional situation. I think one of the things that's really 
crucial and that I think we're experiencing now, and I've written a bit about this in a short piece for NYR Daily, is just how overwhelmed we are by COVID information. I mean, it's sort of a, unfortunately, a, a really paradigmatic case for some of the things I was talking about in the book Infowhelm. That is like the data for around COVID is constantly changing. It itself is uncertain, but also what it means for our lives, our political system, as you're saying, um, economic systems, education, basically all aspects of our lives, that itself is uncertain. It's contested by people in power, whether it's, you know, a governor or president or a business owner or whatever it might be. But also, like, we have to respond to it on a daily basis as well, like, as individuals and also as a collective. And I think that's it. it those conditions are really the conditions of Infowhelm that I talk about in the book as well. So I think if I were, I, I talk about this in the context, especially of climate change, as you were saying, also in, in around issues like extinction and biodiversity, but I think this would be a really talking about COVID-19 and its infowhelm would be really important to include in the book. And I think one reason is because of those um, entanglements that you were talking about, right? It's the data just doesn't come to us unmediated. It's coming to us mediated by people in power, mediated by scientific understanding and representation mediated by our own emotions and stresses, mediated by like the racial conditions in our country. So I think it, it really is a an unfortunately perfect case for thinking <laughs> about all of the complexities around scientific data and how they enter our lives. I mean, it's too soon for much art to have emerged around the COVID-19 data situation aside from like visualizations and, you know, short essays, but I'm sure we will see soon, you know, even more artistic production around that. And I think it'll be fascinating to see how artists are like really wanting to, as you were saying in the intro about the book, do some degree of translation or communication of the scientific context, but also mediate it, you know, shape our understanding of what it means for individual lives in, in very different conditions. And I would say, I mean, I think like a lot of people right now, scholars and, and really everybody thinking about how anti-racism does and does not appear in, in our work and in our communities and in our interactions with people is really at the forefront of my mind as well. And I will be quite honest, that was not a, a part of Infowhelm. I mean, it has a very strong, a lot of thinking around anti-colonialism and what happens to colonial forms of thought and managing environments in the present and how artists are really transforming those colonial forms of thought and perception and representation. But I will confess it doesn't have much on, it doesn't have an anti-racist bent and I think if I were revising this book right now, I would certainly be reflecting about how that could be a prominent part of the project in, in terms of the archive, in terms of adding even more um, thinkers of, um, from Black studies and Black feminist epistemology. There's a, certainly some of that in there, but I think it, I would make it even, even more prominent. 
that last point is so interesting, Heather, because I was I was thinking, you know, if this is maybe also one consequence of uh, at least the Black Lives Matter movement, the ways in which it's sort of regained the momentum uh, and, and surpassed the momentum it's had in the past. The, a lot of the uh, environmental humanities criticism I've read, uh, which I've learned a lot from, tends to not discuss race or foreground race that much uh, in, in their analyses. Uh, and, and I wonder if, if you want, if maybe uh, the Black Lives Matter movement that's re-energized will have a lasting impact on that. I'm wondering what you think of that. I suspect it will. And I mean, I certainly I'm advising students and I have, I have colleagues in the environmental humanities who are really integrating black studies, critical race studies and environmental studies. So, and I think in its, there are existing texts out there. Um, actually at my university, we are bringing on a, a visiting scholar next year named Jonathan Howard. Who, who I have to stop you. I have to stop you right there, Heather, because Jonathan is actually my colleague at Boston oh, College. Right. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and I was actually on the search committee uh, that hired him. Uh, we we're very, very excited about his work. And I was going to say, he's an excellent example of someone who's really working at that place between race studies and environmental humanities. Uh, yeah. You know, really exciting work. Uh, and I just want to say, I hope you guys aren't planning to steal him from us because we very much would be upset by that. Well, I have no comment on that. I am not part of the, I was not part of the committee that uh, I was technically on some um, attenuated form of leave this last semester and was not a part of that conversation as intimately as I, I might have been otherwise. But I was certainly super excited to see him um, joining us um, and but I mean, and there are other, I mean, I have a colleague in my department on the rhetoric side, um, Donnie Saki, who works at this intersection. So I think it's certainly out there, but I, I agree that compared to some, to, for example, indigenous studies, I think the, the approaches to the intersections of, of race and environment within I would also add the literary humanities has not been maybe as prominent. And I, I do expect that that will be changing even more than it already has started to. I think in a lot of in the social, social sciences on the in, in within environmental social sciences, the focus on environmental racism has been very strong. And yes. but yeah, I do think there will see even more of a shift of attention that will will be really productive and, and important moving forward. That's, I'm hoping that's true. <laughs> Time will tell. I think. Well, yeah, I just, and I, I think I'm also looking at the the group of graduate students. You know, maybe over informed mm -hmm. by people I'm working with, but there's been a lot of interest, I think, coming from um, energy humanities as well, and the focus yeah. on uh, the Gulf Coast region. You know, being in Texas, there's a lot of attention to that, maybe even more here than in other places, which which like sort of necessarily calls on us to think of about the intersections of energy extraction and racism in our country, but also in in other like in Nigeria and in other places around the world. I think your your student uh, Delia Barnes yeah, wrote something yeah. really interesting about the Gulf Coast and and true detectives and thinking also about energy. Yeah, yeah, and she's really um, enjoyed her book. She, yeah, she's just finished her PhD last year and is starting a, 
a next step in her career. So I think we'll see more coming from her. Which <laughs> yeah, I hope so. Maybe this this relates to to this discussion about thinking about uh, uh, race and environmental humanities. Uh, in your in your first book, Echo Sickness, which is a really fantastic book, uh, you make it a point to emphasize early on uh, that there's a need not to decouple responsibility and agency. Uh, I understand you meaning that it's important to be able to say that we are able to name those who have directly contributed to environmental problems as responsible for the mess they've made. That you know, when we talk about, let's say, crisis, environmental crises, uh, it's important for us to be able to say it's not caused by all of us, but caused by uh, certain individuals or certain institutions. Uh, and it's important not to decouple, right, uh, their responsibility for what's happened uh, and say somehow that we were all involved. I, I wonder if your idea of artistic mediation signals a, a continued commitment to this idea of thinking about human agency and responsibility together? I mean, this is especially around, well, really around all environmental issues, but I think with, with climate change at the forefront of many of our minds, you know, the question of responsibility is incredibly complex because there is a degree to which a lot of those living in affluent countries have all contributed, right, to um, mm -hmm. carbon emissions and the ch planetary changes that are taking a place. Similarly, with things like you know, oceanic pollution and plastics, there's, uh, there is a, a dispersal of responsibility. However, I think the question of responsibility on a large scale has to name names to, as you were, you know, indicating, mm -hmm. you know, that and, and acknowledge the differential responsibility that people within a country or a context have, you know, my carbon footprint is not the same as um, someone else's carbon footprint, even within the US. And that certainly goes when you compare countries or communities across the across the globe. And I think sort of recognizing that and recognizing the institutions such as corporations or the military, whatever it might be, who have contributed the most are essential to some of these questions about climate justice happening on the international stage, right? That we can't say that, oh, moving forward, we're all on the same level playing field. So we're not going to sort of acknowledge the contributions that the affluent countries have made as we're developing international policy and moving forward. So I guess that didn't really, hasn't yet answered your artistic mediation question, but um, I think that's really, it's really central to a lot of the questions around, especially climate justice that are happening right now. Um, mm. So I think it's, it's important not to say like, well, no individual has any responsibility or agency, but it's also important to acknowledge the, the disproportionate responsibilities and contributions certain corporations institutions and countries have made and and communities within them but artistic i think artistic mediation is really important for this question i guess because of those complexities of navigating scale and you know keeping some focus on 
maybe the the individual or the local while also encompassing um, broader broader perspectives global perspectives uneven uneven burdens and damages i think that can be you know when we we walk through our lives it can be quite easy to focus just on what we see day to day we read mm -hmm. the newspaper and it might be alienating i guess this goes back to infowell but it can be alienating or disturbing or it can be othering of the problem. Um, so even when we take in those more um, those perspectives beyond our immediate ones, it can sometimes be hard to really take them in, right, as something that we're a part of. And I think you know the literature, film, visual media of different kinds can really help help navigate those gaps between ourselves and the rest of the world. And I don't think this is necessarily about empathy. I, I, I'm not exactly saying like, oh, we magically feel empathy for people who might be experiencing the harshest effects of, say, global temperature rise or hurricanes. I don't know that empathy is always the mechanism at work, but I do think artistic mediation is, is crucial to drawing some of those bridges between scales and between individual experiences and really collective experiences and burdens. I was giving a, I was talking to a class once uh, that I'd been invited to and, and I said something about how I didn't really like empathy as a, <laughs> as a framework for trying to understand what like literature that. does. <laughs> and, and I lost, I lost that class 100%. Yeah. They were all with me and then, yeah, they didn't, they didn't like that at all. But, uh, but I, I, I'm there with you about the empathy point. Uh, and, but I, I think also what's so interesting about the idea of infowell, if I'm understanding it correctly, is that it's not just a matter of like our be like information being dumped on us so that we feel overwhelmed, but it's also like the artistic mediation has a way of kind of weaving through that data and speaking back and creating kind of cogent narratives that help us to navigate that overwhelming amount of data. So there is in that idea of artistic mediation, the potential for some kind of agency, you know, or, or ability to make sense of the data and, and make it useful, you know, and make it manageable. Yeah. And one of the things that, I mean, to your point that it's not, not just about a dump of data. I mean, one of the things that was interesting, interesting to me in starting this book and continued through it is a lot of the art I talk about whether it's a science fiction novel or a realist novel or a data visualization or even photography, it, it's often reproducing the information overload. So, I mean, you find mm -hmm. that what's happening is not like, you know, maybe just humanizing the data, a word you hear a lot in scientific context, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, but it's kind of reproducing a that experience of information overload, mm -hmm. but in a way that histor might historicize it, might find a way to navigate it, as you were saying, like emotionally ex or experientially, or according to one's like identity position. So it's, um, for example, I, I have in the section on the aerial imaginaries and forms of art activism that use satellite and aerial imagery, one of the things that really interested me is the artists like Fazal Sheikh 
or who's a photographer and works with mm -hmm. A.L. Mm -hmm. Weissman or someone like Laura Kurgan, who is a visual artist as well. They are sort of repurposing these technologies and the data that they produce and that are behind them. But as a way to really think through the, the histories behind those technologies, how we've relied on them to sort of show us the problem, but what doesn't get shown. Um, so it's really sort of interrogating the histories of information and the sources for information and also interrogating, you know, how they can be remade to, if not show show us the problem, right? Seeing is believing, you know, these sort of phrases that are are trite and called out often in these environmental and NGO contexts. But it's not about just showing the problem, but thinking about what's not seen, you know, what the data cannot show us, how the technologies are imbricated in various histories of surveillance or colonialism. Mm -hmm. So yeah, there's, I think the, the info realm is cert, is like a, an impetus to really think through how we got to where we are. And I use, I use we there, um, probably shouldn't use we there, but I think a lot of <laughs> artists are thinking about the position of like dominant Euro Western forms of thought and representation and how they have gotten us to this position of relying on these technologies to really show us what's wrong environmentally, but how they have also helped produce the environmental problems and mindsets that, that we're living with today. I thought that discussion of Isabel Sheikroff was so fascinating in the, in the book, you know, uh, and in the way that you, you, you write about how his photographs really speak back to narratives in Israel about a kind of reclaiming of the desert and the planting of trees and and and, and challenging in some ways the kind of triumphalist uh, and even environmentalist kind of narrative that they uh, proposed by by revealing things about what's actually happening there. Yeah, you know, so that that might be an example of of a kind of uh, artistic mediation that recuperates or, or makes sense of the data and, and gives maybe, you know, a new way of navigating the information that we're getting. And central to that, a, a task seems to be also like uh, your focus on epistemology, which, which I want to make sure to touch on, because it is it is really interesting how much the book, you know, obviously it's called InfoWell, but how much of the book is really focused on questions of like how we know what we know. Yeah. Uh, so much of the recent thinking uh, in environmental humanities that we're seeing now seems almost to be hostile even to epistemological questions as they turn much more to like ontological questions, questions about being, right? So I'm thinking here in particular of figures like uh, Timothy Morton, Donna Haraway, Jane Bennett, Bruno Latour, uh, and, and even Mel Chen. Uh, and, and I wonder how, you, how, how your work responds to this kind of turn to ontology that they seem to represent, yeah. if that is, is an accurate way of describing what they're doing. Yeah, so I, I, I actually, this does come up and we're talking a lot about pedagogy, which I think is great in, in conversations in my environmental humanities seminars. Um, there is a lot of interest in the new materialism. You know, mm -hmm. the folks that you mentioned are affiliated with that in various ways, not everyone in the same way. But um, and these 
questions of ontology, right? This um, multi-species ethnography, multi-species justice. I mean, the agency of matter, right? It has, it comes in many forms, but this whole, the whole sort of ontological turn, I know we all hate turns, but I just said it. (laughs) It's one of the, um, definitely one of the big trends and movements within the environmental humanities. And I don't, I mean, eco-sickness and the way that people were talking about it in reviews and things like that, many of them sort of affiliated that book with with a kind of new materialism, maybe most associated with um, Stacey Alimo and others. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. But I, I and, so, and these questions are often in my mind, but I have always found it hard to separate the ontological and the epistemological. And I think that might be evidence of an anthropocentrism that I have a hard time getting rid of. That mm-hmm. is like these, a, a real shift in how human beings think about being itself. I don't see how that's possible without really probing the ways we come to know things, right? Like the, the mm-hmm. one of the reasons why, I mean, there are certainly barriers to thinking about the liveliest, liveliness of matter that are, you know, just like the limits of understanding and perception and communication between different forms of matter. But I think a real limit is also the ways in which many people, especially in the Euro West, are trained to think, right? There's a, there are these categories in which many of us slot things. There are, um, you know, this form of matter, this form of being can do this sort of thing and this other cannot. Uh, there's just these, these forms of categorization um, description, taxonomy, which is part of the mm-hmm. book as well, I think are just so deeply rooted in how many people, especially in, in the domains of environmental thought and policy in Europe and in America, how we think about things, I think, is really essential to how we come to understand them and and see our forms of interaction with them. And I mean, there are people um, who use the phrase onto-epistemological to, <laughs> to acknowledge that, that like when you are talking about the sort of liveliness or messiness of matter, it's always bound up with different forms of thinking as well. And I think, you know, maybe bi-directionally, but certainly from, from the the human thinking about yeah. the other than human, so I I just have a I actually have a hard time differentiating those things and and it might be a reason why I focused on epistemology in the book so much is because it didn't seem to be as discussed as much as you know I maybe expected it to be in some circles of the environmental humanities which is not a, a I I don't position the book at all as some rejoinder or uh, response back or pushback to sort of ontological new materialism and forms of thinking through ontological difference and multiplicity. I don't at all position it that way. It's more, I think, of a, a way of acknowledging that forms of thought are really important to changing the way that 
human beings do approach environmental relations and environmental problems. I, I think, I mean, that, that part of your, you know, the focus on epistemology is really welcome. And I think it's going to come up more and more because, uh, you know, especially if environmental humanities starts to get into more conversation with race studies, I think you'll find it can't abandon epistemology because race for, so central to race studies is this focus on the question of how we know what we know, right? Because it shapes so much of our understandings about race and also a hostility toward ontological positions, mm -hmm. which presupposes perhaps like the existence of racial difference, which we don't want to concede. Uh, you know, so, so there's already uh, a, a bias or, or a, a favoring, I should say, uh, of epistemological approaches in race studies. And, and I think if environmental humanities engages in that conversation with the insistence on, on, a, on a kind of no ability of ontology. Yeah. And I think it's, like, it's, it causes all sorts of interesting complexities in, in that dialogue. Yeah, I appreciate that. That's, um, I think you put it better than I did. <laughs> I really appreciate that. And, and I was just thinking through the list of, of um, thinkers that you began this question with, you know, Donna Haraway, Bruno Latour, Mel Chen, Timothy Morton. But I, I mean, I was thinking especially of uh, Chen, Haraway, Latour. I mean, I think their their work, as I understand it, like certainly has these um, these ontological objectives, you know, and thinking really mm -hmm. tr troubling our understanding of what ontology means and how we differentiate forms of being. But I think those projects are all like even thinking back to Har well, certainly Haraway's early work and situated knowledges, certainly Latour's early work and like we have never been modern and and other science studies works. It's it was very much like how we know what we know, right? It's it was yeah. very much like here are the instruments, here are the paper trails, here are the institutions, here are the um the sort of gender binaries and differentiations that structure the ways we come to knowledge and constrain you know, what we, we know. And so we have to sort of acknowledge those things, recognize them, document them, and also then find our ways outside of them or beyond them. So, I mean, yeah, even just thinking about that genealogy to me, a lot of the, those ontological projects, I think come out of and are still really bound up with um, epistemological questions as well. One place where you really advance this point is in your discussion on classification of the middle section of the book. Uh, you, uh, I'll, I'll quote a small passage because I, I was really struck by it where you said that, uh, quote, what classification brings to the fore is its own limitations and failures. It includes and invents as it strives to order. Uh, and I, I found myself really thinking a lot about that passage. You know, on the one hand, it's a kind of critique of like taxonomy, especially the ways in which like natural history taxonomies not only try to make sense of like flora and fauna, but also wedges humans in that taxonomy as well. And, you know, you start to get racial classifications that both invent and occlude. And, and, and I, I was kind of thinking about those in, for two reasons. One is, uh, you know, like I think a lot of people uh, who've been sheltering in place, I've been, I've been going out for a walk every day just to get some air and get some exercise. Uh, and I spent a lot of time while we're walking 
looking at the flora and the small fauna, and, and I keep wanting to actually know more of the names of the trees and plants and flowers I'm seeing. Like I'm always kind of regret not knowing those. So there's a there's a kind of will to classification there, right? Okay, right, right. <laughs> and, and then on the other hand, I find even in the in the book that I'm finishing up now, I, I'm I'm sort of being pulled toward this tendency to classify what I'm seeing in the literature. Uh, and, and I guess I, I would love to hear your thoughts on this. Like, what advice would you give for anyone who might find the pull of classification or literature or classification or taxonomy attractive? What are some of the dangers? Uh, what might it enable? No, and I, 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 I'm like interested and we'll have to have another conversation like when your book is out, but maybe even before, uh, <laughs> yeah. about about how that's manifesting in that project. It's, I mean, I, I have one response that the sort of classifying literature side that I don't know, maybe is idiosyncratic to my scholarly upbringing, but there was, there was something, I don't know, reassuring and also like a demonstration of knowledge about being able to classify texts and say what their attributes were. Like mm-hmm, if you mm-hmm. knew what a sonnet was, if you knew the the attributes of the Bildungsroman, if you knew what a Sestina was, I don't, whatever, there, there's this very like classificatory impulse in thinking about genre and form um, within yes. literary studies. And I say in my classes, like, especially if I'm teaching something like postmodernism, which is its its own like very fraught, messy classificatory project. But it's like my interest in pin the genre on the donkey is very, very minimal. <laughs> like I, I, <laughs> I don't find those things. Uh, they don't aren't energizing for me to. You don't want to you don't want to read through lists of descriptions of right. genre classifications. They can be very useful, right? The sort of like, I think acknowledging yeah. the utility and what that signifies, like being able to classify is 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 really powerful, at least in our academic and, and I'd say environmental cultures in, in the US. And yet those are often, you know, they are pushing maybe or at least sidelining other perspectives on a text, for example, they're maybe sidelining other traditions that that we, in maybe a traditional U.S. academic setting, aren't trained in or aren't trained to see as readily. I'd say the same for like classifying flora and fauna. There's, I think, just acknowledging, and that was what was interesting to me in a lot of this new natural history is that the artists are certainly trafficking in those traditions of classification while at the same time showing what is not included in them or so easily, as you quoted me as saying, um, occluded from them. But yeah, I I think the, I don't want to jettison all of our forms of literary classification because they can be, they are also tools for invention, right? As I talk about in the book. And, and tools for really critique and resistance to existing traditions or dominant traditions. And I think in that respect, they can be really useful, but I think using them as gatekeeping or as forms of narrowing and exclusion is, is where it gets into, pro- into, gets us into trouble. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, I don't disagree with you about gatekeeping. It's certainly a problem for us. 
But since we were talking uh, on literary topics, I, I, I want to actually make sure to touch on uh, the literary works that you focus on. After reading your book, I picked up Barbara Kingsolver's novel, Polite Behavior, which has been on my shelf forever. For whatever reason, I just haven't picked it up. And I finally decided I'm going to read it and, and see what it is. Okay. Uh, and, and I found your reading of that novel both uh, compelling and, and frustrating, uh, because I have to admit, I did not like that novel at all. I thought it was a really problematic book. Uh, and I, I wonder if you could talk a little bit more about how you choose or chose the literary examples to focus on. Like what criteria did you use? Did aesthetic judgment play any kind of role? And I'm also thinking here about, your, uh, about the discussion you have of the film First Reformed, which I also viewed after reading your book, uh, as well as Michael Crichton's uh, novel, State of Fear, which I have to admit, I haven't read. I started reading it and I just couldn't yeah, continue you reading don't. it. You don't have to. <laughs> <laughs> I'm glad to hear it. So I actually, I wrote a piece for LitHub. Oh, wait, sorry. I did write a piece for LitHub, but this is not where I wrote about this. I just wrote a piece for Asli, the Asli mm -hmm. website, which isn't up yet, but I guess we'll be in maybe by the time this podcast is out. But I, I kind of acknowledge what maybe you're, you're picking up on, which is um, I, there are a lot of reasons I write about books and very rarely is it because I love it or even mm -hmm. necessarily want to read it again or think that it is a perfect specimen of X, Y, or Z. Uh, it's, I, I actually, my experience with King Solver was the same. I read it because a lot of people were talking about it. It's a bestseller focused on climate change. You know, I was, mm -hmm. I was interested mm -hmm. in, in what, you know, how this book was reaching a huge audience and what it was saying. And I, I also really did not like it. Um, and <laughs> I've never taught it and I didn't think I would do much with it until uh, I was forming ideas for this book, which actually some of the origin originating points for this book were much more, were in the space of data visualization and, and yeah. then went into the literary. So kind of the opposite of my own training and my own career, which was like exclusively literary based. And so as I was thinking like, well, what is the fiction or what is the, the creative nonfiction that is trying to wrestle with scientific information in a pretty direct form? You know, starting the project, I kind of went with the most obvious things, you know, like what, what are some books where I remember or I, you know, friends have talked about or I've seen in reviews uh, where they are really incorporating scientific data, scientific methods in a, in a pretty direct way. And that book, Flight Behavior, came to mind. I was like, well, you have all these conversations. I mean, this a woman becomes basically an amateur field biologist and then goes on to, you know, the very end of the mm -hmm. book, she mm -hmm. goes on to college to study that more. Um, you have a lepidopterist in the text who's <laughs> obviously a field scientist. And there are these long scenes of dialogue about collecting data, what it means using analogy to understand it. And so I just, I mean, you can always not write about a book. It's not like anyone's holding a gun to your head, but, in, but I was like, wow, this is, a, even though I agree, this is a problematic book. I, 
I still thought, well, it is doing the uh, managing of information in an aesthetic context that I'm really interested in. Likewise with state of fear, I mean, that is, it was vilified by environmentalists and climate scientists for its climate denialism. And, and yet it was also doing that work. I mean, it embedded graphs. Mm -hmm. it, it does, it is itself sort of staging itself as a scientific text with like references and, and graphs and a lot of data. And so these are not texts I uphold as really exemplars of um, maybe much beyond like how it, it, they represent sort of the aesthetic mediation of InfoWell. And I mean, I think there is aesthetic judgment in, in some of the, some of the texts I write about, I, I find like Fuzzle Shake when I, someone, a colleague of mine, Jason Kahn's recommended um, the conflict shoreline. And I, I mean, that was uh, an aesthetic experience. Like I, uh -huh. I uh, don't often have when I'm necessarily in that like sort of research space, you know, like I described mm -hmm. what I was working on. He said, take a look at this book. I went and looked at it and I was just like overwhelmed with the, certainly the beauty of the photographs, but just like the depth and the texture and the complexity and, um, right. And I was like, well, I have to write about this because I want to <laughs> like I want to dwell with this work. So I think it certainly aesthetic judgment comes in in some places and in other places. It's much more of an intellectual query. Mm -hmm. And I try to call out some of the problematic aspects of text and, you know, sometimes wonder if I should do it more so that it's clear, <laughs> like, um, that well, I'm not endorsing them as, uh, as, you know, the exemplary of, say, cultural um, exchange or, you know, interracial conversation or whatever it might be in the case of, um, in the case of flight behavior. Yeah, you do, you do characterize it as sentimental, which I think is just right. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so. I appreciated that. Uh, since we are we are we are talking about uh, you know the the book of photographs, uh, which sounds fantastic, by the way. I haven't had a chance to find a copy of it, but I will yeah, soon. It's hard. Uh, yeah, it's probably hard to get your hands on. Right? Unfortunately. Yeah. Uh, but but let's let's turn to the section on 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 the aerial because I think that that's a really important part of the book. I, I was I was thinking about how. Uh, there was a satellite photo that went viral. I don't know if you saw it, but it was a view of the White House and of what is now Black Lives Matter Square from above. You know, there's lots of problems, as people have pointed out already, about what the mayor of DC did, uh, given her own sort of budgetary priorities in favor of the police. But when I was looking at this photograph, I kept thinking of that scene in Colson Whitehead Zone One, mm -hmm. which you also write about. Yeah. Uh, where someone is rearranging the cars on a Connecticut highway so that its uh, its its message, whatever it is, can only be viewed from above. Mm -hmm. and, and you suggest following Kate Marshall's lead that this is an Anthropocene view. And elsewhere, you talk about how the aerial is uh, connected to a history of, of, uh, of imperialism. I wonder if you could talk more about this view from above. Uh, you know, and in particular, like that satellite view, you know, what's happening in that photograph? Is it a form of surveillance? Uh, does it enable a way of knowing that can be liberating? Yeah, this is, I actually haven't seen that photograph. My mm -hmm. 
social media intake is a little reduced these days, but I will certainly now check it out. I mean, I've, I've seen some aerial photographs of the writing of Black Lives Matter, but not with, mm -hmm. um, but not with the White House included in it. But this is, I mean, this is, um, in that my idea of entangled epistemologies is a, about how traditions of thought and representation, including the aerial and the satellite that are very much embedded in colonialist and enlightenment and positivist traditions continue through into contexts more of resistance or critique um, that, that include necessarily questions of embodiment, emotion, uncertainty, speculation. And I think the the aerial and the satellite is one of is a is a really uh, crucial domain for this entanglement because of, as you're saying, like it can give us this perspective, and this is how it's been written about and really lionized in certain um, facets of the of environmentalism in the U.S. at least, uh, you know, mm. of offering a new perspective, bringing us into community having us see ourselves as planetary beings like like, this a, thing, like the celebration of the blue marble photograph exactly yeah which indoors i mean certainly in you know the 1960s and 70s when that image was new mm -hmm. and, and revelatory to many people that was that idea was um, very prominent but it certainly continues today so it, it's been held up, these satellite views, these aerial views are held up as a way of seeing problems, forming connections, sort of putting a person both in their place as like an individual, but also connecting them to some maybe bigger community, mm -hmm. um, including with other forms of being, you know, not just humans. And at the same time, uh, you know, there's been a lot of environmental writing, among others, like critiquing right the association with surveillance the association with um ideas of totality completeness you know if i just see it and this goes back maybe to your question about agency if i just see it i feel and know certain things and therefore i act in a certain way to like to be mm -hmm, clear mm -hmm. about it like change the world um and so there's I see in different uses of the aerial and satellite imagery um, from the artists like Fuzzle Shake, Laura Kurgan, and activists like Sky Truth, uh, they and Colson Whitehead, some novelists I write about, they're really interested in that tradition and the ways the aerial and, and satellite are held up as these like eye-opening, life-altering images but yet are always linked to these traditions of domination and oppression. So how can you use them without reproducing that? Are you always reproducing those traditions of domination, colonialism, extraction, you know, when you um, use those, um, those techniques in your work? And I mean, I think I was really excited by the visual artists and activists in the project because mm -hmm. I felt like they were really walking that line and very self-reflexively thinking about the tradition in which they were they were operating. And on the literary side, like the the Whitehead example and I yeah, I really appreciated Kate Marshall's 
um, reading of that novel and built off of it in in Infowhelm. But you see this in a lot of places. The the aerial perspective comes in at key moments in literature of potentially like enlightenment or confusion or hmm. or. I guess back to our conversation about ontology, I talk about the ways the aerial in some of these novels um, allows some ontological messiness to occur. Mm -hmm. um, I'm writing about their Jeff Vandermeer, um, mm. and I wrote about Claire Bay Watkins, um, Kim Stanley Robinson, and and others. Um, Indra Sinha is another author in that in that section of the book that they're certainly also appealing to this idea, like you you get up above and you get a perspective on some global problem or big environmental phenomenon. Um, but what interested me about the literary text is they also then went down below. There was like mm -hmm, mm -hmm. constant shuttling between the aerial and the subterranean um, in those novels I just mentioned that in the way I describe it sort of promoted these these ontological questions, these questions of being, um, like, what is this phenomenon? What is this, this creature? How are we, um, what is even the environment around us under conditions of climate change? Like in the case of Ken Stanley Robinson's book, where it becomes this water world. Um, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So yeah, I, I think that that question of whether you're trafficking, always trafficking in these, these, um, traditions of domination and oppression when you deploy technologies or perspectives that are rooted in them is really at the heart of these artists work and and what interested me about them that, that question you just asked about you know about its relationship to these relationship to dominance really gets me to think about uh, the work of J.D. Steff, uh, who's been writing a lot on drones. Uh, I really admire her work a lot. Uh, she uh, makes a point in a recent uh, Modern Fiction Studies article uh, that, uh, that the drone POV uh, is no longer something that belongs to the military, mm -hmm. but has actually invaded the domestic sphere. And one example she gives is Martha Stewart, who uses a drone to take aerial shots of one of her estates. Yeah. So on the one hand, the drones are used to dominate space outside the U.S. Uh, but on the other hand, they're used to augment pleasure in the domestic sphere with domestic meaning both home and nation, as Amy Kaplan helped us to see. Uh, you know, and, and certainly I, I see this more and more like when I watch a television show or a movie now, uh, it's really rare not to see mm -hmm. shots of landscape uh, with the use of drones, you know, you just clearly, you know, there's clearly like aerial shots that you could only get with a drone. You know, they did, clearly didn't hire a helicopter. Um, I wonder if you could say more about the ways in which this aerial view might help us to think about that division between like domestic and foreign or between pleasure and domination, mm. you know? Yeah, uh, this is maybe a sidebar, but I um, just the other day was reading The Guardian and there was a through the use of, of drones, scientists are able, were able to understand and see like the the um, turtle populations in like mm -hmm. some very mm -hmm. remote part of the ocean that they had never been able to track before because they you know would go out to sea and couldn't get sort of this this more um, comprehensive picture of them. Right. And, I mean, I think like 
in the domestic, certainly in the domestic sphere, but also in in the environmental sphere, you're seeing a lot of uses of of drone work, um, including from artists. There's a woman named Marie Lorenz that I worked with here in Texas who uses drone photography for her for her projects as well. So I think, yeah, like other forms of the aerial and the satellite, it's it's really with us and and permeating a lot of our our visual imaginaries. But the, yeah, the domestic and the, sorry, can you repeat the question? I just kind of- Yeah, I, I'm really curious about the, about the division between the domestic and the foreign, you know? So the domestic side, you're pointing out, we're, we're finding all sorts of uses for the drone that gives us pleasure, maybe inf important information, scientific information. Uh, it's aestheticized, but you know, when we use drones, when the US government, I should say, or the US military uses drones abroad, it's really for domination, right? I mean, the drone is a is a form of surveillance. It's a way to deliver, uh, you know, munitions to targets. It is a, it is a force of domination, and so I, I do think about that division between the domestic and the foreign, and and the ways in which the drone mediates that, yeah. you know, that divide. Yeah. No, I think yeah the. Um, and I would say, I mean, certainly the the satellite and. Liz Delagri has written about this among others, but how the these technologies and perspectives have been are mil, often militarized. There, I mean, extra, aerial photography begins in in military context too. I mean, aside from like mm -hmm, mm -hmm. photographs in the nineteenth century, but um, when it really takes takes off, to use a bad pun, um, it's, <laughs> it's really in these militarized contexts and. It's one of many, like drones, satellite imagery, one of many things that has these roots in domination and death and damage that does get domesticated, not only like Martha Stewart's house, but, you know, um, my neighbor across the street has a drone and he takes it out with his kid and like, I don't know what they're looking at, <laughs> yeah, yeah. They're looking at something. And um, yeah, so it becomes, and what, I guess what troubles me about, I, I don't think there's anything you can really do about how these technologies travel and forms of representation travel. That is what they do. You know, mm -hmm. the internet has its roots in, in military space as well. These things will travel. But what I worry about is the disconnection and sort of the loss of that history and connection so that when something like when Martha Stewart is using this technology or when an artist is or when an environmental group is, I think there should always be that moment of self-reflexivity about the technology you're using. Not to say that you never should because it's tainted and you're just, you know, inhabiting the position of, of the colonizer or, or the weaponizer, you know, the, the mm -hmm. military person. I don't think you, I don't, prefer that that way of thinking about things mm -hmm. um, around technologies but that kind of re self reflexivity and also sort of building it into the work is especially in the artistic space seems really crucial to me to sort of be able to tell those histories and to sort of remind people that these are colonialist militarized tools um, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm but sort of move them to a different purpose. I mean, I know there are some people who would think like, well, no, they're always tainted. Um, but I just think that what's crucial to me is those forms of self-reflexivity and telling that mm -hmm. history. 
And I don't know what that would look like in a Martha Stewart type context or like <laughs> taking your kid out to the park to look like at a big crowd, yeah. not right now, but at a big crowd at a concert or something like, I don't know that that kind of self-reflexivity and um, historicization is maybe going to happen in those contexts. But um, I think that's one of the advantages of artistic work is that it can elicit those and work with those in, I think, productive ways. I don't know if it's justified or not, but I, I really don't think of Martha Stewart as being particularly self-reflexive. No. I think your point stands. Uh, you know, and, and, and maybe this, this could take us to, uh, you know, one of the last topics I want to talk to you about, which uh, you brought up earlier about data visualization, which is, it's kind of a little perverse. We're bringing this at the end when it was such a important, it's at the very start of the book and clearly important to what they're doing. So I, I was thinking as I was reading your discussion about data visualization, that uh, this spring uh, I was teaching a climate fiction class. Uh, and after we went remote, I found myself writing a, a new unplanned lecture on what I call graphical literacy. I wanted to teach something to my students. Yeah. And, and I wanted to just give my students something useful. So I said, okay, let's, let's talk about graphical literacy, you know? And, and, I, and I, had, I drew heavily on Edward Tufte's work about data visualization, mainly because it, it makes such a positive case for how this can be done well and how we can transform a lot of information into stories that are relatively easy to comprehend. And I, and I was using Tufti then to analyze, let's say, the Financial Times graph, which displayed countries with the with, you know, differential rising numbers of illness and death, mm -hmm. or, or really the now famous flattening the curve diagram. Right. I wonder if you think about, like, let's say the Financial Times graph or the flattening the curve diagram, how you'd rate the quality of the data visualization that became popular during the pandemic. Yeah, I wrote, I did um, in that New York Review of Books daily piece, wrote a little about this, like, well, I called it data literacy, but yeah, graphical literacy is certainly another, um, you know, when the data takes- Maybe a subset of that. Yeah, yeah, graphical form. What, and when I first started writing about data visualization, like sort of as precursors to the book, but didn't become a part of the book, I think I was, I was wrestling with these, with some of these questions of quality, but also like some of the questions of um, action, agency, and knowledge that, that we've been talking about in this conversation. That is like, do we think that a graph is good <laughs> um, or you mm -hmm. know, has a high quality if it makes someone A, understand something, or B, do something, or C, just like looks really cool? Um, right. Um, so I had read an essay. I'm now, I think it was in the millions.com. I don't even know if that site's around anymore, but it was in the millions. And it was someone who had written about the idea of infogasm. Like you see a piece of uh, a, a graph, uh, a data visualization or an infographic. And, you know, like this incredible feeling of like pleasure and um, just like totally excited and thrilled by the object itself. So I think, I mean, there are other things to think about also as like, is it communicating the data accurately? If it's a, you know, based mm -hmm. scientific, especially scientific or economic data. 
So I think there are a lot of ways to approach the like quality question of mm -hmm. sort of like, I think I said accuracy, um, pleasure, aesthetic pleasure, and otherwise action and knowledge. And so I would say like with the flatten the curve graph, like for at least a lot of people, it led to a sense of action, right? Oh, mm -hmm. like we must respond. Like this is showing us this surge that's going to hit hospitals if we don't socially distance. Um, it's not just about protecting my personal self or my family. This is about, you know, protecting various systems and the people who are most vulnerable and have and rely on them for their survival and and for their employment, right? Like the healthcare system. So I think like by that metric of action, you know, the flatten the curve graph was was quite powerful, maybe one of the most powerful um, data visualizations. I don't know, probably that I've ever seen. Maybe maybe mm -hmm, mm -hmm. people could. I mean, the the hockey stick graph is another one within climate yeah, change yeah. that was that like we are on a path to just out of control emissions and global temperature rise and all of the cascading effects of that. So I think there are on that question on the issues of like knowledge and in some cases action, we do have some some examples out there. But I I think for in some case like data visualization has been this um, like really fascinating thing to me because I was initially drawn to it for those sort of like aesthetic pleasure and fascination reasons, but then very right. quickly would pause and be like, wait, what are the tropes this is calling on and what's <laughs> not shown here? And what is this assuming? What is this trying to do? What is it actually done? You know, just like all of these questions that would be subsequent to it. And I mean, sort of in the discourse around information visualization from like those who make it and those who are like, big promoters of it, there's this idea of insight, which I think also comes up in Tufty in different in different forms. But like, how can you arrive at insight with like the neatest, cleanest, like most minimal visualization that's also still like accurate, right? And but like insight to me was also just one of these fascinating concepts, like coming out of my work on eco sickness, where I'd been thinking about those pathways between like awareness, feeling awareness and action. It's just like there can be this assumption in the visualization world that there's a very neat pathway between those things. Like you do a quote unquote perfect visualization, right? That accords to maybe Tufti's principles and, and people <laughs> have like sparked this insight that will then lead to something more and it's that something more that i've yeah i've really pondered and then also on the other side like what what tropes and what exclusions are sort of at play in some of this work but you know great. i i don't know if um you know this essay by joanna drucker i mean she has this great book called graphesis but I, then i haven't read that one there's, yeah, she had this essay, I think it was for, might have been for DH Quarterly about like, he, he basically graphical literacy, but also within a humanities perspective that mm -hmm. I have, yeah, taught in some classes along with the kinds of graphs you're describing that I, I found helpful. That might be really great to, to read and teach in a class alongside like Tusty's work and think about yeah. the role data visualization plays, maybe even 
work with students to evaluate prominent uh, data visualizations around climate change. You know, uh, so much of what we know about it comes from our ability to take massive amounts of data and compress it into a visual form that we can comprehend more easily. Yeah, so and there's really, I mean, I think the data feminist work by um, Lauren Klein and her collaborator, whose name I'm forgetting right now, <laughs> and various like Invisible Women, a book about how data often excludes women and you know, mm -hmm. there's this white male norm that really drives a lot of data collection and analysis and therefore also um, visualization. There's just, there's a lot of work from a lot of domains that I think is really exciting. And like Bridget Snyder works on climate visualization from like a interpretive perspective. So I do think this is going to be even more prominent as we like have like a TLDR kind of kind of world like mm -hmm. <laughs> well, your work as well your work as well will be important to to those discussions i think let me let me wrap up our conversations i think we're, we're starting to get to the end here uh like turning returning us to current affairs you know uh I'm, I'm, there was just an article in the new york times about how as uh as businesses are reopening up and traffic is returning to the streets uh, the massive decline in emissions that we've seen, you know, uh, last few months have are crawling back up. Uh, you know, so it was only just a reprieve that we were getting. Uh, I'm I'm curious to hear how you see both the pandemic as well as the Black Lives Matter protests affecting efforts to combat climate change. You know, what? How? Just look into your crystal ball and tell us how uh, <laughs> how can these current events. Uh, you know, will affect the the effort, you know, the, the kind of climate activism that we've seen developing. Yeah. Well, one thing I am excited about and um, and I'm trying to help along in my own communities is, is really a reckoning with and trying to think through futures for like greater anti-racist work in the climate change and climate justice sphere. Um, sphere. Mm -hmm. I, mean, I think there's there's a lot out there, but as people, I mean, I've been collect, collecting a resource for this for some people I'm working with and conversations we might have and actions we might develop around, like, I mean, just looking at some titles I, I have here, like green sciences, white people problem and race and racism in the geosciences and how racism derails our attempts to fight the climate crisis. Like this is a lot of people have been thinking about this for too many years, but it hasn't been integrated enough into a lot of climate planning, research, curricula, all of these things. So, and I think also like recognizing, acknowledging more than has happened, the sort of partitioning of different forms of environmentalism that get coded white or black or people of color, right? There's this like, it's not ubiquitous, but there's often this um, segregation partitioning that people are, I think, coming, especially white people are coming to recognize and organizations run with dominantly um, white leadership are, are recognizing. And I mean, I, I've had a bit of a cynicism of late, um, but I'm really hoping hoping that the 
moving forward within climate change, um, like integrating with and learning from and um, taking action um, around Black Lives Matter will be will be really crucial. And I think it's it's happening and I hope it continues to happen. COVID-19, you know, I'm sure you've seen a lot of thinking around this about like, well, maybe this is this moment of of seeing how a, the so-called global community tackles a um, systemic crisis, um, existential right, crisis. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And people, I think, in the beginning were drawing those connections between climate change and COVID-19, that there could be something we can learn from this very quick response to COVID-19. But we're also seeing how entrenched some of, like, for one thing, the we're seeing also in COVID-19 just how differently people experience the, the harms of a crisis like climate change and a crisis like COVID-19. And I think that's like something to learn from, but whether, whether it will then lead to some change in how we think about and address climate change to me is uncertain. And I'm not in the U S context. I'm, I'm maybe not totally sanguine about, about how COVID-19 will impact future climate policy or action just because it's being used by at least our current government is I think a, a shield behind which there are a lot of really terrible environmental rollbacks and policies going into place. Mm-hmm. Like, not to mention things like climate research has been halted and you know funding is being cut in a lot of spheres for things that might you know, really be helping with climate change. Like there's a whole, I was reading, there's a whole raft of projects that were about climate mitigation and adaptation across the U.S. that have just been put on hold and their funding is set to expire and it's unclear like whether they will get get their funding renewed given the current administration. So I think there's a lot of like analogs and, and sort of a recognition that even when we think a crisis is global, that it actually harms certain populations more than other, like the poor Latinx communities here in Austin, for example, Black folks across the U.S., but whether that will lead to different kinds of, of systemic change in the in the future is, is unclear to me. I'm sorry, my, my crystal ball is not like necessarily clear or very um, bright and shiny, but those are just some of the things I've been thinking about recently. Thanks, Heather. That's really uh, interesting and uh, sobering, but I think a lot of us feel sober about what's happening right now. You know, uh, there does seem to be, on the one hand, a very concerted effort by the administration the presidential administration, uh, as well as members of Congress, to use the pandemic as an opportunity to really gut environmental protections and uh, undermine uh, environmental protection laws. You know, very, very predictable kind of patterns of behavior during times of crisis. But on the other hand, you do have a mass movement of people who are organizing around the Black Lives Matter uh, banner, but also, I think, understanding has a, a pretty sophisticated understanding of the systemic and structural issues at stake here, not only around policing, which you know is vital and important, 
but the ways in which it connects to incarceration, to austerity, to uh, you know a, a real deterioration of, of democratic institutions and 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 uh, and, uh, and really like I think um, an inability to uh, respond to uh, crises, not only like COVID-19, but also uh, environmental crises. You know, we're, we're really in a, a situation where I think lots of people just intuitively understand uh, how, well, just how fucked up everything is, to put it nicely. Uh, <laughs> so, you know, uh, definitely something I've been thinking about a lot as well. Uh, but for your book, uh, I want to say uh, it's just been really, really helpful for me to think about these issues. Uh, and it was really something to to take the time to read your book when all of this was unfolding around me. And I guess the questions I kept asking you about current events is because your book did help me uh, to think uh, critically and in new ways about what's happening now, and what's happening with the arts and what's happening with the environment. So thank you for that. Well, and thank you so much for like this, this really provocative and um, generous conversation, you know, like, I appreciated the like, maybe harder questions and uh, <laughs> that are but that are very rooted in, like, your your learning from the book and, and wrestling with it. And like I said, I'd love to have a conversation about your unfolding project to wherever it is. And um, in whatever stage, because it sounds well, I mean, as I know from us encountering each other at conferences and things that we've been thinking uh, on similar paths. And so I look forward to that conversation too. But yeah, this yeah I'm looking forward to it. Really great. It's so, you know, sort of under these lockdown conditions, um, the book came out and um, just haven't been out in the world to talk to people about it. <laughs> Um, now and then I get an email or, a, you know, I bought the book or someone tweets that they're going to read it. But this is really like the first sustained conversation I've had since it came out. And so I really appreciate it. Uh, this has been great. I, like, Yeah, well, I hope it's not the only one. I hope it's just the first of many conversations mm -hmm. around the book. It definitely deserves it. That was Min Song and Heather Hauser in conversation. Min Song is professor of English at Boston College. Heather Hauser is associate professor of English at the University of Texas at Austin, and the author of InfoWorld, Environmental Art and Literature in an Age of Data, published by Columbia University Press in 2020. You've been listening to EdgeFX, a production of Shea, the Center for Culture, History, and Environment in the Nelson Institute for Environmental Studies at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. This episode was produced by Addie Hopes and me, Daron Darnov. The music you're hearing is by Julian Lynch. You can get all of our episodes sent straight to your computer or mobile device by subscribing to EdgeFX wherever you get your podcasts. If you like the show, please leave us a rating and a review, or tell a friend about it. That really helps connect us with new listeners. You can follow us on Twitter at EdgeFXMag. And, as always, keep up with the steady flow of great content about cultural and environmental change across the full sweep of human history at edgefx.net.